You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Would you stand with me? I'd like to read the passage that we have for today. And um, it is in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, chapter 64. So Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 to 9, 1 to 9. Isaiah 64, 1 to 9. Or that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and all our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are, we are all your people. Amen. Father, would you please bless your word in our hearts. Lord God, thank you for already speaking to us. Thank you for already, you know, being with us here, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your amazing promise, Lord God, that you're always going to be with us, even when we're unfaithful. Thank you for that. Lord, would you speak to us this morning, continue to speak to us this morning, and do what you do best, Lord God, and change us and mold us and transform us, make us more and more like Christ, so that we would give more and more of our heart to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated, Summit Church. We are excited to start a new series called Good News. It is a four-week series that will culminate on Christmas Day. Well, more like the second day of Christmas, uh, December 26th, because that's when Sunday uh, will fall on, and we'll have our service then. Um, but this is a very specific four-week season, um, a season in, in, in which the church, in the church calendar, uh, where churches all around the world prepare for the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they have a word for this, and I'm sure you've heard it. It's the word Advent. Um, so the English word Advent comes from this Latin word Adventus, right? And it, it means coming or visit. So if you've heard of uh, this word Advent, it means coming or visit. It's a time that's characterized by three postures of the soul. And in one of these postures is the posture of intentional waiting. You may have heard that, uh, intentional waiting. And the reality is that there's a deep longing within us. There's a deep longing within every human soul 
for something more. And so we allow ourselves to hope. We allow ourselves to wait, to wait intentionally, especially when we look around and we see the brokenness of this world, right? Now, the second posture is anticipating. So not only waiting, but anticipating this emptiness that we feel sometimes, right, in our soul. And, and we expect that God will come. We expect that God will just meet us and fill us. Then there's this posture of preparation. It's not only waiting, anticipating. Then there's this posture of preparation. And we take some inventory of our life. We assess our life. And we take time to think and to invite the Holy Spirit in. And and, and that He would work in us. That He would move in us. That that we would become more and more like Christ um, over the course of the next few weeks. Now, no one really knows when when the season of Advent actually started. The church has been practicing it since 567 A.D., at least, 567 A.D. It was the, that year that a number of monks got together, and they decided to take a season of, of fasting leading up to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, their practice of, of fasting was adopted by the church later on to eventually become the season that we now know and celebrate as Advent. One of the main postures, as I said, is the posture of waiting. And uh, so I read a study this week, earlier this week. You wouldn't believe this, or maybe you know, uh, that uh, it said that human beings, and I think this, was a, this is uh, a statistic for, for us here in North America, so uh, that said that human beings spend approximately 10 years of their life waiting for stuff. I'm like, no way, this is not, no, this is not true. And I... Just, I, I just looked at other sources, and that's, they all kind of said approximately 10 years. So just, isn't that crazy? I didn't want to believe it, but sure, let's go with it. Approximately 10 years of our life, we just stand in line or just waiting for stuff. Check this out. Six months of our lives here in America, we wait at traffic lights. Six months. It's like, man, that's a lot of wasted time, isn't it? <laughs> um, the average person spends about 43 hours, no, Days, 43 days on hold, right, with an automated customer service. I think that number should be higher, <laughs> right? Uh, we've all been there, correct? And my knee-jerk reaction when I hear this, when I was kind of reading, is like, this is such a waste of time. We waste so much time. What's going on, right? But I think the truth is that waiting is just a part of life. It's a universal part of life, and everyone kind of waits. We wait for different things. And maybe, just maybe, God is up to something when he has us waiting. Hmm. So we can relate, can we? But the reality is that we don't just wait in cars. We don't just wait in lines for the next iPhone or the next gadget or whatever. We also wait on things that are more meaningful and deeper than that. There are people that are waiting to get pregnant. There are people that are waiting to get married. And there are people who are waiting for a child to come back home. Maybe they've wandered off and away from God. And there are people who are waiting for that job to come through. And they're like, hey, I really need this. Is this going to come through? Is this going to happen? Or maybe just waiting on that healing to come that you've been waiting for years. And, and you're hoping and you're anticipating and you're preparing. Lord, this, is this the year? Are you bringing healing to my body this year? That's what Advent's all about. It's about waiting, anticipating, and preparing. But... It's about a specific kind of waiting. It's about a a waiting for a specific someone or event. It's not just waiting in general. Now, we've chosen to use this passage that I just read uh, from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 64, 1 to 9, 
to kind of walk us through this first session of Advent. We're a week late, just so you know. You're probably wondering, hey, this should be a second week, but we're still going to go through the four weeks, okay? So we're a week, just, just in case you were wondering. Now, there's a lot of debate uh, about when Isaiah was written, this, this fabulous book. Um, but the passage we're looking at today, Isaiah 64, is either a vision of exile, right? Or it's Isaiah standing in exile when his people have been displaced. Most commentators say the latter, that Isaiah was standing. He was, he was a part of it. He was there. Now, you just have to imagine what it was like in 587 B.C. for these Israelites. Just kind of picture these people who loved God, they loved Yahweh, uh, they were God's people, God's nation, right? But at this season, at this moment, they were deviating from God's word. They were deviating from his instructions, right, and his commands. And just a quick note, we, we see this a lot, don't we, in the Old Testament. God's people just being unfaithful, rebelling against God over and over and over again. Hence, God allowing them to be taken in exile, in captivity, C.S. Lewis uh, put it like this, suffering is God's megaphone. For some reason, that's the only time that we, you know, care to listen to God's voice in suffering. It's pretty, pretty, pretty effective and efficient. So what they were experiencing in 587 B.C. was that the Babylonian army came in and completely destroyed their city and their cities. They marched them off, and, and so the Israelites were taken from their homes, oftentimes separated from their families, so, so to say that this was a devastating incident for Israel is an understatement, just an understatement. And Isaiah is writing with an exile to try to paint a picture of what, of what God might do if these Israelites would turn back and trust in God again. That's kind of the premise. Well, let me just say this as a side note. Here's the power of exile. There's power in captivity and exile. The power of exile causes people, causes us to relinquish, to surrender the things that we hold on to, and it's not good for our soul. And this happens to us all the time, and God will use certain types of exiles, right, here in this life. He'll allow some kind of suffering, right, in our lives, some delicate situations, some, some interesting circumstances, painful circumstances, just so that we would surrender our idols, just that we would surrender our addictions and our loves that are dishonoring to Him and destroying our life. And remember, He does this because He loves us with an out-of-this-world perfecting kind of a love. That's why He's doing it. So Isaiah prophetically speaks into that, and he's sort of the voice of this nation as they cry out to God. Now listen to his exile cry in Isaiah 63, the previous chapter, just verse 15, just for a second. So he's talking to God and he says, he says this, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Hmm. What he's saying, in other words, is God, you're distant. Where are you? Where are you? You're far away. Where are you? Please, God, look down. I need you. Are you in a season like that now? Any of us here in a season like that? A painful and frustrating season maybe. Maybe you've experienced some loss or, or, or you, you're experiencing some pain or some kind of, of suffering, discomfort or, or anything like that, right? And you feel that God is distant. Well, let me just encourage you this morning that you're not alone. And looking at our passage for today, 
the nine verses, but specifically looking at the first two verses because we want to kind of go, go through the verses, right? That's what we do here at Summit. Now, we have one of the greatest prayers, I believe, recorded in all of scriptures. Now, listen to what the prophet Isaiah prays. So, this is a continuation of the prayer that he started in the previous chapter, chapter 63. And listen to this, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's, that's intense. This word rend is to vehemently tear open, that you would tear open the heavens and that you would enter my pain, God. That you would enter this exile, God, here where I'm at. That you would enter our disappointment, our disillusionment, our, our displacement, that you would enter my pain. And then he continues, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. Very interesting observation is that Isaiah's prayer starts with look down in the previous chapter, verse 15, the one that I just read earlier, and ends with, God, don't look down anymore. Come down. <laughs> just come down <laughs> at the beginning of our text here. So I think Isaiah recognizes that there's moments, there are moments in life where we don't just need another answer. We just don't right? We don't need God to look down from a distance, right, and, and say, this is why, sure, that helps. Oh, yes, that helps too. Or even act from a distance. There are heavy seasons in life where we just don't need to hear another sermon or argue the finer points of theology, like sometimes we do, or have another Bible study on Calvinism versus Arminianism, or read another book on broken relationships, or even to receive an encouragement from a friend. That's not what we need, first of all. The only thing we need is to know that God is with us right there and then. That's it. We need to know that God is near to us. We need to know that he's right there with us. That's it. That's the first thing. So what Isaiah points out is that our deepest craving, listen, church, our deepest craving, and it doesn't matter if you know the Lord or you don't know the Lord, uh, this is for every single human soul that sucks oxygen in their, in their lungs. Our deepest craving, our deepest need, our deepest hope is God's presence in our lives. Period. That's it. And by the way, we have the phrase God's presence, if you've noticed, three times in the first three verses. Beautiful. Have you ever prayed that prayer of desperation? God, come down now because this is just not, not going to work. <laughs> God enter in, God come down and enter into this marriage because it's dry and it's broken and we don't know if we're going to make it or not. Or God enter into this relational situation because I know I need to forgive, but I just don't have the power within me to do so. God enter into this job situation now. We don't have any more money. We're not going to make it one more month, right? And, or it could be that you just don't know God, the God of the Bible. You just don't know him. By the way, you're in the right place. And you see your brokenness and sinfulness, and all you want is, God, save me now. God, forgive me, please, from the disease of my sin that's been just destroying my life. I love this because desperate situations stir within our human soul. Desperate prayers, passionate prayers. Rend the heavens and calm down. Rend, just tear the, the heavens open and please calm down. God, enter into this space. I love what Spurgeon said about this, and I quote, Groanings which cannot be uttered are often prayers which cannot be refused. 
There's something about desperate situations that stir within us just desperate prayers, passionate prayers, that stir in us a dependency on God and prayer. And we'll touch on this a little bit later um, as well. Maybe this Advent season you start to recognize, I don't necessarily need an answer given to me. Or at least that's not the first thing that you need. First, I need to know that God is with me. And if he's not, if God is not with me, how can I get his presence in my life? So God, I'm going to plead with you. Come down, enter in, enter into my heart, enter into this space, my soul, my marriage, my house, this workplace, this neighborhood. God, come down. Isaiah writes about it. Advent invites us to wait on it. And Christmas reminds us that this is a prayer that God loves to answer in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I love the sound of that. (laughs) That's the gospel. That's the whole point of our waiting, anticipating, and preparing. Everything is answered in Christ. Friend, did you know that Jesus came for you? Did you know that Jesus came so that He could bring spiritual healing into your soul and life? Did you know that he's taken your sin away and wants to offer you real life and abundant life? Did you know that in Christ alone, by faith alone, you can be saved if you fully trust in him? Christmas is a reminder that he came down. He really did. Jesus came into our broken world at the very first advent, at the very first coming. And every advent since, every coming since, is a reminder of his continual coming, advent, into more and more lives. And that advent is, in fact, our advent. And what what do I mean by that? Well, it's our moving into the lives of those around us, into the lives of the people in our sphere of influence, into the lives of the people of this world. If If you have experienced the true advent, authentically, then my friend, it's time to hit the streets with the gospel. So this passage in Isaiah goes on to unpack for us what it actually looks like to position ourselves, right, to receive the presence of God, which is the deepest longing of our soul. And this is what Advent is about. What does it look like to wait well, Uh, to, to be the people who wait well on God's presence? Well, Isaiah tells us in the next two and a half verses, and up until nine, well, let's just take the next two and a half verses. So verses, uh, verse three, four, and five A, let's continue. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Waiting is important. God wants to do something amazing in the waiting. Notice that Isaiah is pulling this theme of waiting and of God's presence into the picture, right? And for the Israelite community, that's, that's an exile. And he wants to remind them that their portion of the story, that they're living right now, isn't the way the story started. And it's not the way the story is going to end either. He goes, hey guys, remember, remember, God came down and met us at Mount Sinai. He did. He was faithful. 
You remember that God led us through the Red Sea and God brought us out of Egypt from slavery. God did that. He was faithful. Remember, God has done multiple and, and so many great things in the past. Now, this, think about the Israelite community in exile in Babylon. I mean, their hometown is in plunder. It's completely destroyed. And Isaiah is inviting them into a counterproductive activity. That's what we would say, right? To just remember, like, what? No, Isaiah. No. <laughs> no. Not sure if you realize, Isaiah, but we are in captivity and we are suffering big time. And you're telling us that we need to remember? Really? Thanks a lot. <laughs> we need for God to send a host of angels and destroy the Babylonian army, and to take us home. That's what we need right now. Isaiah's like, I'll do you one better. Trust God that no matter what happens, he's got you. And just in case you, you forgot, he's got a flawless track record of delivering on his promises. And if, if he were to send an angel army, by the way, Next time you're going to want the same thing and your heart would not, would be in the same place, unchanged and without the presence of God. So try to remember, because this is more powerful than a heavenly army coming down from heaven. So one of the ways that we wait well, that's what the text says, is by remembering God's past faithfulness. How about that, church? This is such a powerful tool that we have at our disposal, I think. Remembering the, the, the faithfulness of God. Because the present can dictate to us, right? And you've got so much suffering in, in, right in front of you, so much pain that you just can't see anything else, right? But God has a beautiful purpose in the waiting, and we can see it unfold if we choose to trust in Him. So Isaiah calls out this powerful act of memory, and he's not alone. We see this throughout scriptures, and, and we see it through the Psalms, and I'll give you just one example, but there are many. Psalm 77, 10 to 15, I'm not going to read it now. You'll have, the, you'll have the psalmist remembering God, that you've been faithful in every generation, right? As if to say, even though we're in the valley right now, and we're suffering, Lord, you haven't failed us, right? You haven't failed us. You will not fail us now, and you're never going to fail us. If you want to wait well on God, church, we have to remember well. It kind of ties in with what I was saying last week and too. And the kind of remembering I think Isaiah is pointing us to is by looking back at your own life, our own life, and intentionally tracing the fingerprints of God through some dark seasons in our life. But not only that, through some really high mountains as well. Right, church? Can we do that? Is there anything popping in your mind right now as I say that? Because I think there are so many examples in our life of God's past faithfulness. And we have to do it intentionally. It's one of the ways we wait well and we call on the presence of God to meet us. But we haven't done the remembering well. Let me just, let me just say this. And if we don't remember anything from this point, remember this. We haven't done the remembering well if all of our remembering does not start at the cross or is not founded at the cross. What's, what's the point of just remembering some things if it's not in Christ, right? So remembering what our Savior did for us at the cross. 
He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin, that you and I would become the righteousness of God. He took you out of nothing and me out of nothing and made you a son and a daughter of the Most High God. He forgave our past and present and future sins. He gave us a new life, new dreams, new goals, new taste buds, new purpose. He gave us a new eternity. And then as we're remembering, church, let the truth of his marvelous salvation just, just explode and his infinite grace explode in our hearts and let it drive us to our knees in worship, adoration, and thankfulness. Amen? Here's the second thing Isaiah says in verses, uh, we'll just continue from uh, 5, 5b to 7. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Throughout the first portion of the book of Isaiah, God clearly said to his people over and over and over again, you've messed up, you've messed up, you've messed up big time, please come back. I'm inviting you to come back. Please come back. Don't forsake your God. Leave your idols and come to me, your only true God. And guess what? They didn't. They didn't. So God brought them off into exile. People that wait well, they come to God. They don't run away. Come to God, and then they are broken over their sin. Broken over their sin. Now, the first thing we do in waiting is to remember God's past faithfulness, right? But we remember the cross as well. That's the foundation. The second thing that we do is to be broken over our sin. And to confess it to God. Sometimes I think we have this idea that if we're good, if we obey God's instructions and commands, then we can control God. You know, we can say, God, you need to show up now because I've been pretty good this week. You need to move here and, and here. You need to do this and this and, and because um, I've been good. I've been good for the last month, right? Isaiah says that you can't control God and at the same time, you're a lot worse than you think you are. <laughs> That's pretty much he's saying. In fact, he uses really, really vulgar language, right? And some translations kind of capture that to explain how, just how dirty and offensive our sin is. He says it's like a menstrual cloth before God. That's what he says. I know. It's filthy. And yet, and yet, Isaiah's prayer is, God, please come down. I see this. I know this. But please, we need you now more than ever. So let's get the first thing straight. The first thing that Isaiah says in this text in regards to sin he says, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Like, man, ouch. Spurgeon um, said this about our self-righteousness, and I quote, Morality is a neat cover for foul venom, but it does not alter the fact that the heart is vile, and the man himself is under damnation. Men will be damned with good works as well as without them, if they make if they make them their confidence rather than Jesus Christ. Right on point, Spurgeon. And you might say, well, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on, Ovi. Before I became a Christian, I did a lot of good things, man. Yeah, but the Bible teaches here in Isaiah and in other parts too that even our good deeds and good things were filthy in God's sight. Well, hold on a minute. What do you mean? Because those were the things that made you and I think that we did not need God. That's why, right? This is called self 
righteousness. God hates man-manufactured righteousness because he gave his son to die for our forgiveness. God hates those things that make us think that we are clean in his sight when we're not. The only thing that saves, the only thing that forgives is the grace of God through Christ alone apart from our works. Amen? Now, let me make a side note here because I think I need to because some of us may think uh, that, hey, so are you telling me that good morals are not to be pursued by us? What are you talking about? What kind of a church is this? Not at all. We should pursue good morals. We have a whole Bible for that, right? But you do it exclusively because Jesus loved us first. We do it in response to what Christ has done for us, right? To even think that we can do something of equal value to Christ's sacrifice on the cross to purchase our own salvation is the highest kind of blasphemy and offense to God. So let me ask you this question. Are we ready to assess our lives and be broken over our sin? Because that's what Christians do in the waiting for Advent. And not only then, all the time. Here are three questions that may help us with that. Ready? Just three, you know, short questions that I think may help us in the right direction. Number one, do I have certain areas of disobedience in my life that I'm indifferent about? Is there anything like that in your life, maybe? Are there any areas of sinful patterns that I'm just kind of like, ah, eh, nonchalant, laissez-faire about it, right? Well, I'm just like that. You have to know me. You have to know my family, right? I'm, I'm stronger in other areas, though. I mean, I carry my Bible to, ch my Bible to church. I, I show up at D group, right? And I'm, I'm a pretty good person, but I'm a lustful person. That's just me. I'm a gluttonous person. I'm a vengeful person. I live in fear and anxiety. That's me. If there isn't in us an inclination to allow the Lord to change us, to change the things in our life, things that are debilitating to us and dishonoring to Him, that's a problem. And that means that we're probably not really broken over our sin. A second question. Do I emphasize the love of God over the justice of God to lessen my sense of responsibility? You know? Am I that guy that always says, tell me more about God's love, tell me more, and so you can feel better about yourself? And God's love is awesome, amen? God's love is awesome, amen, church? God's love is a very important subject in Scripture, but it's not the only subject in Scripture. And if you only want to hear about God's love because that's the only time you kind of feel somewhat good about yourself, the truth is you're probably not broken over your sin. And then the last question, do I abuse God's grace by saying at the point of temptation, oh, well, God will forgive me. Pah, that's totally fine. Oh, I've done this so many times too. Do I do that? Do you do that still? Do I come to the point of temptation and say, oh, God is a God of forgiveness. Pah, I'm just going to go ahead and do it anyways. He's going to cover that. He covered that at the, at the cross anyways. When I'm in a stressful situation, because sometimes we kind of lash out in those situations where you're hungry maybe and tired, right? And I allow myself a lot of latitude behaviorally and morally because in my heart what I'm saying is God will forgive me. God will forgive me. If that's us, if that's you, if that's me, I'm probably not really broken over my sin. This is not what a genuine Christian says. And God is a loving God and, a, and he forgives and he waits on us, right? So we can learn from this church. 
But a genuine Christian echoes what Apostle Paul said in Romans. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. How could a Christian ever think? How can I ever think like that? How can I say that I understand what Christ suffered and gave for my forgiveness and salvation and then adopt the casual indifference of the very sin that nailed him to the cross? It doesn't make any sense, does it? How can you really allow grace to penetrate your heart and then be like, ah, so I can do whatever I want, right? Absolutely not. A true Christian cannot think like that. In church, I'll, let you, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, this posture of humility in assessing our our own sin and, and the brokenness and humility to see sin in your life and to, and to be broken over it prepares us to host God's presence. It does. Have you ever wondered why, man, I just never, I just don't know where God is. He's been absent for just the longest time. I'm like numb for years. This may be one of the reasons that there's still sin in there, that we haven't been broken and, and given it to him. This could be one. There are other reasons, too. It's not our righteousness and our perfection that prepares us. It's our humility in coming before Him and saying, God, I don't deserve you. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your forgiveness. But we know that Jesus came down and paid the price for our penalty of sin in full. So based on that, God, please enter in. Come in. Here's the way that Isaiah ends this section of this passage. Um, verses 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Here's the third point and the last way we wait well according to this passage. And according to Isaiah, and I'm just going to say it, Reaffirming our dependence on God. Reaffirming our dependence on God. What does, that do? What, what does that do in your heart when you first hear that? Do you depend on God? There are two metaphors Isaiah uses here. It's that of a father and we are his kids, we are his children. We're waiting on our Abba, we're waiting on our father to step in and to hold us and tell us that he loves us. Or we're like the clay, the clay of a pot. Both of these pictures are pictures of dependence, of dependency. The child doesn't control the father, right? Sometimes it seems like that <laughs> with little kids. The clay doesn't control the potter. They are at his fingertips to be used however he pleases, to be formed and shaped however he pleases, right? Dependence like a lump of clay. That's what we are. Dependence like a daughter or a son needing to be loved, to be held. But let me ask you a question. How often do we resort to depending on ourselves, on others, or practically anything other than God? Right? This really hits home for me. Have you reached a point where enough is enough and you're desperate for dependence upon God alone? And that's why it's so good to remember to remember the cross, to remember even God's promises because God is dependable, God is trustworthy, and He is faithful, and we need to remember that because He can be trusted to carry us through each and every day. Depending on God takes surrender and intentionality on our part. This is pretty cool. Someone once said, troubles almost always make us look to God, right? We've been kind of saying that, but His blessings tend to 
to divert our attention elsewhere, right? Because when everything is good, we're like, ah, forget you, God. <laughs> we're good. How true. Depending on God, though, is necessary in the hard times and in the good times as well. That's how you know that you depend well on Him. There are a few practical things that we can do to pursue this dependence on God, but I'll just give us one, just really, really practical and really, really good one. To lay down our crown. To lay down our crown. It's kind of poetic, sure. Fully depending on God involves laying your crown down and seeking a place of humility before God. Revelation 4, 10, 11 says, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Church, we must take our proper position and recognize who God is and that he alone creates, that he alone maintains, that he alone upholds all things. Amen? So that's how Isaiah teaches us how to wait well. That's how Isaiah teaches us to position our soul to cry, you know, out, to cry out for our deepest need, which is his presence in our lives. And the way we do it is by first remembering his faithfulness and then remembering the cross. Everything has got to be founded on the cross. And then we must be broken over our sin. And then we posture our soul by reaffirming our dependence on him by pursuing humility. Lord, we're just completely and wholly dependent on you. Now, in closing, let's talk about how to bring this into our daily life here on earth. I mean, what, what good is a message if we just can't apply it to our life here and now, right? So we're realizing that our deepest longing and need is for the presence of God in our life, and as we wait well, God will fill us. God will meet us where we're at, right? So then what does that really look like? What does it look like? What does it look like in my family? What does it look like on the ground in like real life? What does that look like for us as a community of faith this Advent season? All right? I think the first thing it means is that we need to expect God's presence in our life. I know this sounds so simple. Like, dude, what are you talking about? Oh, but hold on. Maybe I'm not expecting God's presence. Maybe you're just going through the motions and just doing life. And you know you're a Christian, and that's great, that's awesome, and you rely on Christ alone, that's awesome. But did you know that there's a presence of God that we need to walk with and, and beside and, and in this life here every single day, and sometimes we just do life without even thinking that, you know, God wants to do life with us. And one of the things that we learn as we embark on this season of Advent is that God loves to meet people exactly where they're at. If Christmas teaches us anything, it teaches us that God comes in unexpected ways, in unexpected places, a manger, really, right? I love the way the Gospel of John starts with, in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let me translate that for us. Jesus came down and moved into our neighborhood. Seriously. What would it look like in your life, in my life, if you started to expect the presence of God? Would that be weird as a Christian? No, I don't think so. <laughs> That's the thing to do, I think. And not just in church services. That's awesome that we can do this. This is absolutely amazing. I get excited every time that I, I get to worship with you, right? So, but not just in church services or at D groups or, you know, 
But in your everyday life, like for instance, when maybe you're grocery shopping at Kroger or Target, is that weird to say that? Do I sound like a weird Christian now? (laughs) Or when you're on a walk, or maybe when you're on your way to work and you have half an hour to maybe commune with God and maybe talk to Him and pray and write and expect His presence. When was the last time you expected His presence in your life? Or what if we, we started to just have eyes to see it in our hearts, right? To look for His presence. Here's the second thing. To put on our feet on the ground this Advent season. It means that not only to expect it, but that we enjoy God's presence. Hmm. When it showed up, and when it shows up, right? In those strange places. What if we, what if we just enjoy it? What if we started to just expect Him and enjoy Him when He did show up? Do you think that we're too distracted by life? I know I'm just beating a dead horse here, but and that's why we just, you know, miss His presence most of the time. I know I do. I just go through the motions of even doing stuff for church. They're great things, aren't they? But I can just miss God just like that. How sad is it? supposed to be a pastor for crying out loud right finally we not only expect it but we enjoy it but we're also called to embody his presence not becoming jesus no that's not what i'm saying there's not that theology but to embody his presence right to be the hands and the feet right that cliche thing that we used to say back in the day And one of the ways God shows up in the lives of people, church, is through other people who are followers of Jesus Christ, through the church, through us. That's how he shows up. Well, he shows up in other miraculous ways too, don't get me wrong. What would it look like for you, for me, this Christmas season to embody the presence of Jesus in the lives of other people? Your family members, your neighbors, people that you know, non-believers, because we all have friends that are non-believers. I think it would mean that you would have to be intentional. I would have to be flexible. I would have to be available, right? To some extent, because the way we do life in America in the 21st century, well, nothing gets done unless we are intentional about it because we're way too busy. So what if we were intentional about being with people this Christmas season? So, for the next three weeks, church, I want to challenge us the whole church, with a specific challenge just to give us an opportunity to embody the presence of Jesus in our families, in our neighborhoods, right? It's nothing out of the ordinary, but guess what? If we're not going to be intentional, if we're not going to be flexible and available, it's not going to get done. Here it is. Ready? Right after the service today, I want you to think of a person or a family that you know That is a non-believer. They're non-believers, right? Unchurched people. They don't know the Lord. Now, it could be from your neighborhood. It could be a person that you work with from your family. And I want you to start praying for their salvation every single day of this week. Do you want to do that? Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, five hours a day. That's all up to you. But would you please put aside that time? And today, think about that family. Think about that friend. Think about that brother or who that they do not know the lord and just pray for their salvation every single day of this week 
put aside that five minutes or half an hour. And we have this amazing tool. At the welcome table, we have this kind of like a bookmark with all the verses, all the ways that we can be praying for our unchurched friends. How amazing is that? It's a really neat instrument and tool. Please use it. Just grab one. And there's so many different verses, so many different ways that we could be praying for our unbelieving friends. Now, the person or family that you choose to pray for, I want you after the service to write their initials on a star ornament by the back of the church, by the Christmas tree, and just hang it on the tree. Just write their initials and just put it on the tree, okay? And then after you spend a whole week praying for them, come ready next Sunday for your second challenge. You guys good with this? Are we going to do this? Are we going to keep each other accountable? Can we do this? Okay. Listen, church, my prayer for us as a community of faith this Advent season is that we would wait, that we would wait well intentionally, that, that, and that we would wait well hoping, expecting, anticipating God's presence in our own lives and in the life of others that do not know our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you stand with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.